0: I have been uh, reading Philip Yancey's book, "What's So Amazing About Grace," and I have to warn you, I'm really enjoying this book. It may replace "Breaking Bad" as my go-to source for sermon illustrations, which maybe that's a good thing. Um, But but Yancey says that he uh, was—he recounts the story of a friend who was riding in a bus and overheard this conversation between two people. And one of them was reading a book by the author Scott Peck, The Road to Less Traveled, which some of you may have heard of or read. And so here's the conversation. Person number one says, what are you reading? And the second one says, I'm reading this book a friend gave to me. She said it changed her life, but I haven't gotten very far yet. Oh, yeah? Well, well what's it about? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure, but here's some of the chapter titles. Discipline love grace and the person interrupts at this point and says what's grace and they say i don't know i haven't gotten to grace yet i don't i don't know what grace is uh i heard tim keller say recently that he thinks a a lot of the people that he comes into contact with who have rejected christianity don't really understand what it is that they've rejected in other words, they don't really get Christianity and they're rejecting what they think Christianity is all about. Uh, Yancey Philip Yancey said that he started asking people recently, uh, what comes to your mind when I say the words evangelical Christian? And he said that most of the responses that he gets have to do with political positions on abortion or homosexuality or uh, how Christians feel about the Internet and how it should be regulated But he says, no one ever mentions grace. When he asks, what comes to mind when you hear the word evangelical Christian? Nobody mentions grace. And he writes, apparently grace is not the aroma that Christians give off to the world. Somehow, in our posture to the world, when we're trying to communicate what Christianity is all about, we're not communicating Grace which I'd argue is that's kind of it, right? That's what Christianity is supposed to be all about. So we have to ask, how is it that we're failing to communicate the message that's supposed to be the very essence of our faith? Uh, There was a, a counselor who once said that the two major emotional problems that evangelical Christians have were the failure to understand, receive, and to rely on God's unconditional grace and to live it out and secondly the failure to give that grace to other people the two biggest problems he ran into evangelical christians were their failure to understand grace and then their failure to give that grace to other people so maybe in light of that the reason that the church doesn't have the aroma of grace is that we don't understand it so well ourselves I think there's no place better to really understand grace and to think about grace and understand Christianity uh, than in Ephesians 2. <clears throat> it really is kind of the heart of the whole thing. And we're not going to read this entire text. Uh, we read this all last week. But we're going to focus on the very end of this today. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to start in verse 8. Start reading in verse 8. This is God's word. for your enabling this morning, that you would en- enable my speech and that you would enable our hearing, uh, that we might hear the message of grace uh, and be changed by it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Here's what I want to do. I want to I just try to answer two questions. Number one, which we're going to spend the bulk of our time on, um, what is a Christian? And then secondly, why should I want to be one? All right, so, so what is a Christian? And, and why should I want to be one? And, and I hope you'll see Grace kind of, kind of running through the answer to both of these questions. So first of all, what is a Christian? And I want, I want to kind of start very basically. Uh, a Christian, first of all, is someone who acknowledges that God exists. That God is holy. That God is the standard for what is right and wrong. That God is the standard for what is just and unjust. Um, Now, I'm I'm pretty sure that all of us, no matter what our religious leanings are, would agree that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. That there are certain things that people ought to do and that there are certain things that people ought ought not to do. Uh, I heard somebody say recently that the the public school system couldn't teach values. And I kind of thought, well, so you, you let people cheat now? Um, so because that's what you're implying there. If you can't teach values, that's actually a value that you're teaching every time somebody gets in trouble for cheating on their test. Isn't that a value? Uh, C.S. Lewis once said, uh, and, I, and I don't know if I'm remembering this right or not, but I think I am, he used the, the, the example of an orange. Like, if, if I'm eating an orange and you grab my orange and take it from me, I may be somebody who says, there's no absolute right and wrong, but if you steal my orange, you know, we're dealing with citrus fruit now, if you, if you steal my orange then suddenly I'm convinced that that's wrong, that that's objectively wrong, that you ought not to have done that. We all have this sense of ought, of right and wrong, even if if we say there are no moral absolutes. We all have that sense. Where did that come from? Where did that moral sense of right and wrong come from? Uh, If there is no God, as one writer put it, Who among us ought to be able to declare a law that ought to be obeyed? Either God exists or he does not. But if he does not, nothing and no one else can take his place. The same writer goes on to say, As things stand now, if there is no God, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is such a thing as evil. Altogether now says who says who and he says god help us we all get in here that there's some kind of moral law to the universe a christian is someone who among other things has come to realize that the existence of that moral law implies that there's a moral law giver and if there is a moral law giver then his laws apply not just to to those people over there but his laws apply to me as well and so a Christian realizes there is a moral law, which implies that there is a moral law giver, that there is a standard, and that I haven't lived up to that standard, which is what we spent a lot of time looking at last week in Ephesians 1 through 3. We've, we've realized at least something of the truth of the fact that we're dead in our sins, that, there, that there's something wrong with us, there's something wrong with the world, there's something broken about me that I stand guilty before the judge of, of all the earth and actually deserve his wrath. So you might say, if you're, you're thinking about this, you might say at this point, okay, I get it, a Christian is someone who realizes they've been bad, and now they're going to try really hard to be good. Well, sure, that's what every religion is about, right? You, you're just trying to be better. It's kind of a moral self-improvement. And, and I, don't, I don't know that I really need religion for that. And so people think of Christianity as just another religion, as moral self-improvement, uh, as a political thing. They think of Christians who, uh, as people who are uptight about drinking or sex. They think of uh, Christians as somebody who goes to church and, and reads the Bible and prays. Someone who's moral, somebody who's always trying to, to do what Jesus did. But here's the problem with every one of those. Every one of those is about something that you do. And Christianity at its heart is not about what you do. Christianity is about what somebody else has already done. Christianity is not about what you do. It's about what somebody else has already done. And because of that, it's completely different from every other religion. Uh, you, you may be a professing Christian and still not really get what it's about, which may be the reason that that as a Christian even you think, well, we're really not that different from any other religion. That they're all just different paths of getting to God. That, that God's at the top of the stairs and I'm at the bottom of the stairs and I've got to somehow climb my way to God and, and every religion is teaching some variation of that. It, here's Christianity. You're on one side of the Atlantic... And God's on the other side of the Atlantic. Now, the reality is, is we're just running around on the side of the Atlantic don't really want to have anything to do with God. But let's say you, you get kind of convicted of your sin and say, you know what, I need to improve my relationship with God. I need to connect with God somehow. And you start trying to, to swim across the Atlantic. Uh, some of us might make it 20 yards. Somebody might make it 100 yards. Maybe there's, we got super Olympic swimmers. Somebody makes it a mile. But nobody's swimming across the Atlantic that distance is too great there's this gap between us and god so how do we bridge that well the reality is is we don't but god does what does verse 8 say for by grace for by grace you have been saved what's grace it's something good that we get that we didn't deserve to get it's unearned favor it's unmerited favor. It's undeserved favor. If I just paid everybody's student loans off, all right, y'all would say we're paying Justin way too much money. But if I <laughs> if I just if I just paid everybody's student loans off for, for for you know, you hadn't done anything for me, I just decided to do that. That would be grace. It would be unearned, undeserved. It'd be a little crazy, right? Too. But but grace is like that. Grace is kind of crazy verse 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it's the gift of God and so God God is the one who has to bridge that gap between me and and him how does he do that well what was it that created that gap it's my sin that created that gap in the first place so God has to do something about my sin he has he has to find a way to forgive my sin. And he can't just say, okay, your sins are forgiven. Because my sin has to be punished if he's to remain a just God. And so he sends his son to bear the cost of my sin at the cross. God sends his son who, who can swim the Atlantic. He never sins. And yet willingly dies for my sin. He lives the life I should have lived. He dies the death I should have died. And God gives me credit for what he's done. That's grace. Uh, I, I made a zero on the test. And Jesus made a hundred on the test. And I get credit for Jesus' work. That's grace. That's grace. Do we deserve it? No. It's grace. Did we work for it? No. It's a gift. Is it something you did? No. It's something Jesus did. Can you boast about it? No, because you didn't do anything. The movie uh, Babat's Feast, uh, some of you may have seen this or, or, or read this story. It tells a story of this small, austere Lutheran sect. In the movie, they're, they're living in Denmark. And the group renounces worldly pleasures. They wear all black all the time. They eat Boiled cod and gruel, like for every meal. Okay, this is this is exciting living right here. Um, They they basically they were tolerating this world while they're holding out hope for the next. All right, just completely like this is going to be terrible. We're just going to suck it up and we'll eventually get to heaven. The leader of the sect has two beautiful daughters uh, who are named. The daughters are named after Martin Luther uh, and his his disciple Philip Melanchton. So the daughters are named Martine. And Philippia. So, so these guys are, these guys are like are hardcore. And both of the daughters have opportunities to leave and to marry somebody. But they're like, you know what? We don't, that's too much worldly pleasure. And we need to stay and, and take care of our aging father. Eventually, the, the father dies. And 15 years go by. And the sisters try to carry on their little Lutheran sect. But eventually, the sect begins to splinter. And people start fighting with each other. Uh, There are grudges that develop. There are rumors of an affair going around. There are these two old ladies who go 10 years without talking to each other. And and almost everybody quits coming to worship services. And then one day, this lady named Babette shows up, who needs a place to stay. And she's willing to work For room and board. And so for the next 12 years, she cooks and cleans and generally kind of begins to brighten things up a little bit. And then one day while the sisters are talking about how to honor the anniversary of their father's 100th birth, Babette gets this letter in the mail telling her she's won the lottery in France, which is where she's from, and she's getting 10,000 francs. And so the sisters think, well, she's going to go back now. And Babette says, well, can i cook can i can I plan the celebration for your father's for the anniversary of his birthday i want I want to take this on i want I want to do this for y'all and i don't we're not having cod and gruel, okay I want your permission to to have a real celebration and so she starts planning this uh, celebration the the sisters are kind of hesitant about it like I don't know this might get too crazy, but okay and so. What begins to happen over the next few weeks is these shipments of wine and champagne start showing up. And they get crates like filled with live birds that she's going to cook and, and they're going to eat. You know, they got turkey and pheasant and truffles and like a, a cow's head comes in. And like just all this, this great food that these people have, have never seen in their lives starts coming. The sisters are a little worried at this point. So they're like, this is just kind of, this is too much. This is more than what we're used to. And so what we're going to do is this. We're going to eat. We're not going to hurt her feelings, but we're not going to enjoy it. All right? We're just going to, we're going to be our usual somber selves. And so Babette keeps working on everything. And she gets, she finds China somewhere. She decorates the room. It's just this lavish feast that she's going to throw. And everybody comes in and they sit down and they're not really talking. They're being all somber. And gradually, the feast starts to work its magic. And they start talking a little bit. And they start laughing a little bit. They start remembering old times. Somebody confesses their sin to another person. The, the, the two old ladies who haven't talked for 10 years, they start talking to each other again at the feast. Somebody burps, and the person next to them says, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! <laughs> which is what we're going to start doing at our house.
1: Uh,
0: Susan's writing up divorce papers. Um, The the people, they go outside, and they're like holding hands, and they're singing hymns together, and and everybody's happy, and what's happened? Grace. Grace has happened. Uh, In the book, the author writes that they felt as if they indeed had their sins washed as wool. And in this regained innocent attire were frolicking like little lambs. In the final scene, Babette's sitting in this you know, wreck of a kitchen at this point. And one of the fit sisters finally says, it, but it was quite a nice feast. Uh, thank you very much. And after a few minutes... Babette sits silently and she says, You know, I was once a cook at, at Cafe uh, Anglais. Is that how you say that? Okay. I got one yes and one no. I, we're going to go with it then. At, at, at Cafe Anglais. And the sister kind of doesn't even really hear her and she says, Well, we'll just thank you. We'll all remember you when you go back to Paris because they're just assuming she's gone back to Paris since she won the lottery. And Babette looks up and like, I'm not. Going back to Paris, like, all my family's dispersed, and I don't have the money to go back to Paris anyway. And the sister says, well, you just won the lottery. You just won 10,000 francs. Of course you can go back to Paris. And Babette says, I spent it all on the dinner. I spent it all on the dinner. That's what a proper dinner for 12 costs. A café en glace. Grace grace and see that that's what christianity is all about costly to god but absolutely free to you jesus giving you undeserved grace at the cost of his own life it cost you nothing but it cost but it cost him everything it cost him everything and he says come and eat Come and eat. Isaiah 53. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money. Come buy and eat. He who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money. And without price. Well how do you get it? How do you get this grace? It might be more accurate to say grace gets you. Salvation comes by grace through faith, not by works. Uh, there's this kind of weird story in the Old Testament where the, the people of Israel have, they've all rebelled against God again, and, and God sort of had it with them, and he sends these venomous snakes. It's kind of like snakes on a plane. He sends these venomous snakes among the, among the people of, of Israel, and they're, and they're, they're, they're biting them all, and, and all these people are dying. And as you can imagine, everybody's like, well, I think we better repent. Um, and so God tells Moses to take like a pole and to put a bronze serpent on top of the pole and he says to stake that out there in the camp and everybody who looks at that who looks up at that snake on the pole will be cured of the snake bite john chapter three fast forward john chapter three this is what jesus says as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Faith is is looking, trusting and looking and resting in what Jesus has done on the cross. Faith is receiving the banquet that God freely gives to us. Faith is, is trusting Jesus to forgive your sins, to trusting in him to be the one to make you right with god we receive salvation as a gift through faith through trusting in christ and what he's done uh nick walinda has been in the news for his uh tightrope walking again recently imagine if he came to you and said do you believe i can walk across that rope you're like yeah i believe you can do that and then he says to you do you believe i can carry you and walk across that rope And you're like, yeah, yeah, I believe you can do that. And then he looks at you and he says, well, get on my back and let's go. Get on my back and let's go. That's faith. That's faith. Not depending at all on yourself, but hopping on Jesus' back, as it were, and allowing him to carry you to the Father. Now, you may say, ah. that sounds too good to be true. Are you, are you telling me my works don't have anything to do with this? That I don't contribute anything to it? Here's the way somebody put it. We're not saved by works. We're saved to do good works. Here's the way Paul put it in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for our good works, which God prepared beforehand ...that we should walk in them. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. But that grace changes us so that now, not out of obligation, not out of guilt, not out of fear... ...but out of gratitude, out of a changed heart, changed by the Spirit... ...we delight to walk in and to do good works. But we have to keep in mind that those good works flow continually out of our grasping what God has done for us in Christ... Why did the old women start talking to each other again after 10 years? Why did the people start confessing their sins to one another? Why were they doing good works? Because they had received grace. They had received grace, and that grace had set them free. A Christian is somebody who's received grace. A Christian is somebody who's received grace. Now, second point, and I'll I'll be brief with this. Why should I want that? Why should I want to be a Christian? Well, there's the obvious reasons, I think, that eternal life, forgiveness of sins, removal of guilt and condemnation, looking forward to all of this being remade new and right and good and perfect. But I want to give you another reason this morning. I think you should want this because it's the only way you can really be free. It's the only way you can really be free Here's what I mean. Whether you're religious or not religious, we all spend our lives trying to fix the brokenness within us and trying to overcome the brokenness in the world around us. There are things we feel guilty about, things we're ashamed of, ways in which we've been trying to prove to ourselves and to other people that, that I'm okay Maybe you've been trying to do it through your personality, maybe through your achievements, maybe through school, maybe through work, maybe through your morality, maybe through the clubs and organizations that you belong to. Working, working, working. What if? What if? What if you could just quit? What if you could really just quit? Uh, columnist Glennis uh, McNichol. Uh, recently wrote this a few years ago after shooting up the career ladder as a media reporter and editor I quite suddenly quit my very well-paying if not dream job at the top at a top website and then for a long time afterward I did nothing literally nothing when I did leave my house and venture back into my social circles to attend a cocktail party or a book release or a business dinner I would tell people who inquired that I did nothing. Then I would step back and with a sort of perverse satisfaction watch them squirm. It turns out folks don't really know what to do with people who are so nakedly unambitious. It was a little bit like I was inviting them to my funeral. For a long while, this little party trick was my favorite part about going out. I'm reminded of the opening of the Flintstones, where... He comes home from work at the end of the day every time at the beginning of the Flintstones. And think the days of being able to go home are equally as archaic. In the last 10 years, the Internet has essentially become the worldwide hotel California for anyone with a connection. Sure, you can check out. You can check out all you want. There are entire movements devoted to checking out, but you can't leave. Barring some Eagles reference that three of us got. (laughs) <laughs> barring barring some sort of zombie apocalypse none of us are ever leaving the hotel internet ever again and she's talking about this feeling of being trapped at work because of the pervasiveness of the internet but, but what if we could just quit what if we could just quit not literally quit our jobs like <laughs> everybody gets converted today right oh you said we could quit our jobs not 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 literally not literally quit our jobs But what if our identity wasn't tied up in our work and in the clubs we were involved in and in how much money we made? What if I was able to say, I'm going to invite people over and not care what the house looks like today? What if I was able to say, I'm not going to join one more club or organization. I don't care if there's some prospective employer somewhere who's going to be excited about this. It doesn't, I'm I'm just, I'm done with it. What if I could quit trying to impress people? And stop trying to be successful. What if I didn't have to live up to my parents' expectations of me? What if I didn't have to devote hours trying to have the perfect, uh, the perfect mind and the perfect body and the perfect life and the perfect vacation to put on my perfect Facebook feed? What if, what if I was freed from the voices of guilt and shame and condemnation? What if I was free from thinking that I'm never good enough? What if I was uh, was free from the fear that I'll be exposed and free to confess who I really am and what I really struggle with? What if I really quit trying to rescue myself? What if I really quit trying to rescue myself from the futility of life in a fallen world? What if I gave up on my self-salvation Project and accepted the salvation that's offered to me in the gospel. What if I feasted deeply on the meal that Jesus has set before me? And what if that same grace that I feasted on and received from Jesus began to bubble up in my life so that it flowed out into the lives of others? So that was the aroma I gave off not because I had to work so hard at being an attractive Christian, but because like the participants in Babette's Feast, I had received grace. I had feasted on grace. I was caught up in grace and changed by that grace forever. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we, we give you thanks for grace and the good news of the gospel. And um, Father, we confess that we can even feel, and maybe I've done this, we can even feel guilty about not appreciating grace enough. God, may that not be the case. Uh, help us to see your grace. Help us to see the feast that you've laid before us. Help us to run there and delight in that unearned unmerited favor that you delight to shower on us we pray it all in jesus name amen